0: Good morning. I had the pleasure of being in Bear Creek, North Carolina, the last couple of days. Uh, if anybody knows where that is, I'd like to shake your hand. That's awesome because it is literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, I thought Bowie's Creek was the middle of nowhere, but no, Bear Creek tops Bowie's Creek. But the creek would be the, the similarity, I guess. Um, and so at Bear Creek, I was leading uh, music for a Disciple Now weekend, um, and it was. It was very challenging, even for me. Um, Some of the times that I get called out to do uh, these Disciple Now weekends where I'm traveling and playing somewhere else, um, the speaker that comes in is one who, I don't know if it's a stereotype sometimes, talking to youth. Instead of preaching the gospel to them, they are telling them how to live better. And I don't know if you grew up in the church like I did, but that can be a dangerous thing to hear as a youth Um, being raised up. I need to hear the gospel every day, um, even now, and especially as I was growing up. So the speaker this weekend was preaching the gospel, and it was glorious. Um, And so seeing kids really coming alive because of hearing what Jesus has done, not what they have to do. And so we'll hear a little bit more about the gospel through our text this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 25, and, uh, and put your finger there if you're On your phone or your iPad, this will be a little bit more awkward to do that. But um, put your finger in Genesis 25, um, but get ready to flip back a little bit. Um, Because now that we're at chapter 25, we're right in the middle of Genesis. um, But we're on the downward slope, as it were, getting to the end of the book. Um, Now that we have these big narrative texts, these big stories, um, we'll be moving a little quicker to finish out Genesis uh, than we did starting it off taking our time working through Genesis. But we're in the middle, so take a deep breath as we get ready to go through the rest of uh, Genesis together. Um, But let's look at where we've come from. Uh, So feel free to skim a little bit while I'm talking about these things. Like look at those chapter headings that are in uh, the sections of your scripture. Remember some of these stories that we've been talking about for several months now. Um, In Genesis 1 through 11, Uh, these are the generations of. It's one of these big phrases that pops in uh, several times. In fact, it's a key phrase uh, that breaks Genesis up into like 10 parts. These are the generations of. And so look at chapter two, verse four. These are the generations of God. Obviously, we need to start with the creator of all things. So we're talking about his generations in chapter two. Then in chapter five, verse one, these are the generations of Adam. And then in uh, chapter six, verse nine, these are the generations of Noah. So in this first swath of Genesis one through 11, God creates so that we might share in loving relationship with him. It's a beautiful thing. And so, Adam, who represented all of us, uh, he chose himself before God, and we all do the same thing. And so, the curse of rebellion falls pretty heavy in these first chapters. Um, but there's a powerful promise tucked away in the center the whole time the promise that one would come and break the curse eventually. So through Noah's generation, we see that the curse is utterly pervasive. It's sinister in its ability to work its way into every aspect of God's good creation. So much so that God decides to wipe the slate clean, as it were, uh, with the flood. But God rescues, as he faithfully does. And the promise endures. But so does the curse. Uh, People gather together, they decide to make a name for themselves and yet again try to be like God in their own eyes. Uh, So God scatters everybody. Then we come to Genesis 12 through 24 and these are the generations of Abraham. So the last several weeks we've been working through the life of Abraham we find that the promise begins to take a really prominent place in the story because God chooses Abraham, makes a covenant with him. God tests Abraham in various ways. Um, he says, move to where I'll show you. I'm not gonna tell you where, but just go ahead and move there. Um, I'll give you a son, and he's hitting 100 years of age, and that still hasn't happened yet. Uh, then take the son that I've given you and sacrifice him. And we see Abraham's faith in the promises of God work itself out in all of these situations. And we find that because of his faith, God does make him the father of many, many nations indeed. So that's where we've come from. Where are we going? Uh, last week, we learned from the text uh, how Abraham sought a wife out for Isaac and how uh, As parents, some of us, I guess, resonated with that idea of finding the best wife for our child. Um, And so Abraham seeks out, and he gives these stipulations, and it it works out in a spectacular way. Like, this is the best possible scenario. And these uh, are the generations of Isaac that we have moved into. But pretty quickly, these are going to turn into the generations of Jacob. Genesis 25 through 36 are all about Jacob and his story, and it is quite a story. It's the story of Israel in so many different ways. If you recall, Jacob's name is changed to Israel, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's uh, read our text for this morning together, and then I have a few conclusions about our main characters as we walk through the text. So if you would stand as we read. Genesis twenty five nineteen through 34, this is from the ESV translation. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamaran, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau. Because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted, and Esau said to Jacob, "Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted." And therefore his name is called Edom." And Jacob said, "Sell me your birthright now." And Esau said, "I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me." And Jacob said, "Swear to me now." So he swore to him, and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God for the people of God. You can be seated. I absolutely hate being late. More than you can possibly imagine. And having children, however, is causing me to redefine what on time means. Um, For some of you, when you got married, you had to begin the redefinition of what on time means. Thankfully, my wife is very prompt, usually. Um, But there is something that began to happen. when, When our son was born four days late, that was a sign of things to come. So hold that thought. Um, one of the places that my wife understands that I cannot be late for is the movie theater. Um, even though I can watch you know, trailers on my phone or my iPad or YouTube or whatever, um, part of it is I want to have a good seat right in the center. But also, I want to hear and see and experience the movie trailers in the theater. It is, it is an experience, and I love it. And so we cannot be late to the movie theater. And so sometimes there have been trailers that are so good that, like I remember the trailer more than I remember the film. I actually paid money to see. And so that's a, that's a sign of really good storytelling or bad storytelling, depending on what you're talking about. And sometimes the trailer you know, gives you all the good scenes in the trailer. And then you see the film and you're like, I've already seen all of this. Uh, sometimes you watch a trailer and it sticks with you it's a sign of things that are coming so the text for this morning is a really really good trailer for the rest of Jacob's life the story of Jacob and Esau we are introduced to it here in a, in a little snippet it's, it's a little more than a two and a half minute trailer but it is a it is a picture of all the things uh, to come The text that covers their birth is a sign of things to come in a much, much more significant way than my son's four-day late birth being a sign of things to come. Their birth is a complete picture of what's coming. So let's look again at the story, and we'll examine some of the elements as we work through it. So we're starting here in the latter half of Genesis 25, um, but if you have your Bible with you, look at those first 18 verses. Like, Take a glance at those. Um, because we want to remember God's promise to Abraham. Um, remember what, what God said? That he would bless those who blessed him. That he would curse those who cursed Abraham. That he would make him a father of many nations. So God is so faithful in his promises So please hear this in your life too. God is so faithful in his promises that he even blesses those who are outside of the covenant. Look at the death of Abraham here and then the, the generations of Ishmael. God blessed Ishmael, who was not the child of the promise, with 12 princes and ultimately Islamic culture. All of these blessings still given to Ishmael. So we'll see God's faithfulness to somebody else outside the covenant in our text as we continue. So let's, let's remember the rest of Abraham's story. Um, remember where he lied about his wife, Sarah, so that he could save his own skin. Um, remember how he sought to help God out a little bit by bringing Hagar into the picture, Ishmael's mother. Um, he then has to send Hagar and Ishmael away because of family dynamics. So think about that for a second. Think about, you know, these first 18 verses, we see the funeral of Abraham, funeral of Ishmael. Um, At the funeral of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael come together. That's how much they loved him and knew that he loved them. They came together to, to bury their dad. But imagine, just for a second, if you could transplant yourself into that context, like how much tension and awkwardness there would have been between those guys. When Ishmael was, you know, 15 years older or so than Isaac, he was already starting to give Isaac a hard time. That was part of why they had to be sent away. So there's this tension. There's these awkward, strained family dynamics that have entered into Abraham's story. And we see those play out a little bit um, in these first 18 verses. I think it's unfortunate that. You know, Isaac does not make an appearance at Ishmael's funeral, but he did. They did come together for Abraham's. So just a just a note, something to consider. But let's look uh, at our text for this morning, starting in verse 19. Rebecca um, is barren. Okay, this is not terribly surprising if you've read through the scripture before, if you've been in Sunday school, if you just consider their family history. Um, Sarah was barren and now Rebecca is barren. But if we think about the fact that, you know, Rebecca, like her mother Sarah, is described as a very attractive woman as scripture tells us, and Rebecca and Isaac's marriage was picture perfect in how it worked out. This is an optimal situation. But she is barren, and what this reminds us is that it is only by God's grace that the promise perseveres. We can arrange things perfectly for them to work out, but it's only God's grace that really makes things work out for our good. One of the things that also is really obvious, I think, when we look at this is that Sarah is barren and she conceives miraculously. The promise continues. Rebecca is barren. She conceives miraculously. The promise continues. But this is a dim foreshadow of the miraculous birth of the the culmination of the promise of Jesus. The miraculous birth of Jesus through Mary. We're getting a glimpse of that way back here in Genesis 25. And so if you remember the title of this whole series, Gospel Origins in Genesis. We're seeing it right here in Genesis 25. Thankfully, um, Isaac shows his faith. And the fact that he doesn't pull a stunt like his dad, Abraham brings Hagar into the picture because he's hitting 100 years old and there's no son yet. Thankfully, Isaac does not play those games. Instead, he prays for his wife. So this is an obvious application. Husbands, do we pray for our wives? I don't let this moment pass. Think about this. Do you pray for your wife? Do you bear with her the burdens that she carries? Do you bear them with her before God, even if she doesn't know that you're praying for her? Isaac prays, and, and if you look at it just kind of reading through, if you're skimming through this text, it, it, it does seem like he just prays and bam, um, it happens. Uh, But he doesn't just pray once and poof. If you read quickly, it seems like that. But he prays, God hears, she conceives. That's the order. But in the text, we have two pictures of how old he is when these things happen. He's 40 when he begins praying. He's 60 when the children are born. So Isaac prays for 20 years for his wife, presumably. So husbands, do you pray for your wife? Truly, you know, God's grace is unpredictable in some ways, but it is absolutely sure and faithful. So Isaac would not have predicted, I'm gonna have to pray for 20 years. Maybe he thought I'm gonna have to pray for 60 years like my dad, but he prayed nonetheless and God's grace was faithful to him. So after she conceives, uh, we get a very interesting picture. Um, The children are struggling inside her. And the language here in the Hebrew is a little bit stronger than that. Um, They smashed together in her womb is how that really could be translated. That would be really strange to read that in a Sunday school lesson. But my wife is due in a month, you know, four weeks. Um, and she said this morning she's having some Braxton Hicks, so that's exciting. Um, but she is doing four weeks, and the infant in her belly is already making her super uncomfortable, like putting an arm in a weird way. Or, and this baby's been way more active than our first, too. So, like kicking and punching would really be an accurate description of what this baby is doing to my wife. So, I'm trying, as I'm reading through this text, to get my mind around two babies doing that in a belly. I, I can't conceive of it at all, no pun intended. Um, and so this is one of those instances where I thank God that I am uh, a man, that I don't have to, I don't have to come close to, to figuring out what this is like. And I thank God for the strength of my wife and every mother that is in here that has born a child. But this is so bad for Rebecca, these children are smashing together in her womb so bad that she says, God, why is this happening to me? But thankfully, she doesn't just rhetorically just throw out this phrase. She literally, she comes before the Lord and she asks him, why, why, what is going on? Why is this happening? And so this is one of those instances where I think you know, when we ask God a question, we must certainly consider, you know, be careful what we're asking you don't know what answer you're going to get. This is one of those times where she asks a question and she may not have had any clue about this particular answer. But thankfully, Rebecca's faith is evident because she goes to the only one who has any sort of answer for her. She asks the Lord. And God answers her with a really powerful prophecy. And There are two in her womb maybe up until that point she just thought it was one super crazy baby but instead God says no there are two in your womb and they represent whole nations and the older will serve the younger and that phrase is a complete reversal of the cultural norm I forgot to prophesy that that's a uh, she had to have turned her head and said what um, but She shows faith in asking the Lord and receiving from him this word. There's a side note I want to make. I think it's really interesting here how scripture speaks of a person in the womb. This is one instance of many. It's consistent through the Bible. So we as believers in Christ and the authority of the scripture, what we believe about a person in the womb is that they are indeed a person in the womb. And so, even from the beginning of the book, here in Genesis, we are speaking of uh, a person. Not a part of Rebecca's body necessarily, not a vague reference to something happening in her womb, but there are two people here. So, consider that as you read the scriptures and see what the Lord would say about life. Um, As Rebecca finally gives birth... The midwives are helping her out, and the first to be delivered is all red, and he's, he, his body is like a sweater. Uh, and so, I mean, that's how you read that. That's the name Esau is a play on the Hebrew word for red, already. Um, and so they give him this name, and the next one that comes out, he's literally on the heels of the other, um, and his name is Jacob. And it's a play on the word for at the heels of. And really, this was intended to be a strong name, a name that's positive, that uh, had reference to protecting at the rear guard. But Jacob decides to kind of redefine the meaning of heel grabber through the rest of his life. And so we'll read more about that in the weeks to come as well. So as the boys grow, Esau is a hunter, a man of the field. And it would <laughs> be so easy to riff on stereotypes right now. For the next even ten minutes, uh, but I'll suffice it to say, um, he could have been part of Duck Commander, or you know, he was a man's man, whatever that means. Uh, I think I think Esau killed it and grilled it. You know, that's a way to refer to Esau. And then I could just easily riff on Jacob's stereotype. Uh, Jacob is a very different stereotype. When you look at the words that describe him in the Hebrew, though, when we kind of get really at the root of it, uh, it comes across more that Jacob was like cool and calculating man who dwelled inside the tents. Um, after we read a little more, you might think he's a mama's boy. Um, but when I read the description of Jacob in some of the commentaries I looked at, I got the impression that Jacob was a lot like a character on the show Lost named Sawyer. He's a con man. And he's willing to play the long con to get what he wants. So these stereotypes aside, um, we're also getting a lesson in bad parenting 101. Uh, Isaac loved Esau and Rebecca loved Jacob. Um, Parents, as if I needed to remind you of this, hear me, don't pick favorites. Now, I don't know what that's like yet. Um, In a month... In a month, I may be tempted with that. And I don't know. I want you guys to hold me accountable that I would never, ever show any evidence of picking favorites because we see that this is, again, foreshadowing for drama and heartache and pain through the rest of Jacob and Esau's story. I think it's unfortunate that um, even if we never say it out loud, Even if you never tell your spouse that you have a favorite, if you resolve in your heart that you have a favorite, uh, repent of that and love your kids. Um, It's also strange to me that Isaac's reasoning, well, I guess it's not too strange because the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And so Isaac, why does he love Esau? Because he ate of his game. So Esau really could grill it. He could make some sweet deer jerky and tasty venison. And that's what Isaac loves about Esau. Um, we're going to see this drama play out more in the weeks to come. Because remember, this passage is just the movie trailer for what is coming in the story of Jacob. I think there's another challenge uh, for parents, particularly, that's in this passage. Um, Teaching children to love and fear the Lord. Raising them in the gospel, or in this case, in the covenant. So parents, this is a, A clarifying word. Our job is to nourish our kids. To to train them up to to love and fear the Lord. to, To give them knowledge. To give them experience. To model grace for them. Our job is not to save them. We are to nourish them. To provide the environment for the gospel to grow in their hearts. But it's God who saves. So... There's two sides to that, parents. Hear the responsibility to teach your kids of, the, of the, the privileges of being a part of God's family and also the responsibilities of being a part of God's family. But also remember that it is not your job to save your kids. You are called and it is a high calling to nourish them, but not to save them. Trust the Lord. Um, it's so important, I think, for us as parents to... Let our kids experience grace through us so that when they see God's grace in the scriptures and in the gospel, they'll recognize it. If we live out grace in the way that we parent, they'll recognize God's grace that much quicker when they see it in the scripture. You know, we can't help but wonder, you know, Jacob surely, he knew the promise to Abraham, his grandfather, uh, I wonder, did he know what was prophesied to Rebekah about him? Like, did Jacob and Esau, did they know what God said to Rebekah? Did that influence why she picked her favorite? I don't know. This last scene, though, uh, in our text, it it plays out just as the striving in the womb foreshadowed. Uh, Jacob is grasping, and Esau is proving his nickname, of red. So when we come to this this last story in the text Esau says give me some red stew uh, from which he is nicknamed Edom. So Edom is actually even a closer nickname play on words for the word red Um, and his descendants are called Edomites and we see this uh, we see the Edomites play their role throughout uh, scripture for quite a while to come. Um, But Jacob He's playing a smooth con man in this in this story. He he had to have prepared this to some degree. Like he knew at least that Esau went out to go hunting and maybe he didn't he may not have anticipated that Esau would come back empty-handed because apparently Esau usually came back with something and grilled it up and had it with dad. But in this instance, he does not catch anything and he's exhausted. Um, and so as he comes back, Jacob is prepared he's he's one who dwells in the tents already so he's used to some of these activities which would include cooking and so he's cooking something (laughs) Esau thinks out loud though he thinks I'm dying here Uh, I'm going to die who cares about my birthright and this totally reminds me of uh, something I might have said as a teenager sometimes I still said this in college too mom I'm dying give me some food like it's totally a, a teenage response, a particularly a teenage boy response to the presence of something that smells good. Give me that, I'm gonna die. Yeah, that's how Esau comes into this situation. And if you are able to declare your imminent death, you're probably okay. Um, but Esau says this, and that was the end. Jacob was waiting for something ridiculous like that. And so Jacob says, alright, you're gonna die. Hey, uh, give me your birthright. You can have all this wonderful suit that I just made. And and he catches Esau in this and Esau says, okay, fine, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't need this birthright thing. It's not going to do anything for me right now. So then Jacob says, okay, fine, swear it to me. All right, if you're, if you're fine with it, just swear it and we'll be done. And with a bowl of red lentil stew, Esau trades his birthright away. So what are three things about Esau that we might conclude from this particular passage? I think it's always important to let scripture interpret scripture. And so we see this story show up again in a couple places in the New Testament. So they're going to shed some light on what's happening in Esau's heart in this story. So first we'll go to uh, Romans 9. So feel free to turn with me uh, to Romans 9. One of the things we learn from Esau in this text is that it is only by God's sovereign grace that we are saved. So in Romans 9, Paul is writing to the Roman church. He's laying out a phenomenal treatise on theology. So if you've never read through Romans and you have questions about who God is and how he shows himself to us, read Romans uh, and it will blow your mind. And thankfully, this is one of the passages that is pretty much mind-blowing. Because God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And yet we still want to approach understanding him and how he would decide things. But here in Romans 9, uh, starting with verse 6, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this Time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul is saying, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're part of God's kingdom. And that was a mind-blowing statement for any Jewish person. Just because you are genetically a child of Abraham doesn't mean you are spiritually one of his children. When I was singing the song, uh, Father Abraham Had Many Sons as a Child, I thought that, in my, in my mind, and this is very telling, in my mind I thought, I'm singing that I've become a Jew. Uh, I am singing that I am a Jewish person when I'm singing Father Abraham many sons and I'm one of them. That's what I thought. I thought that somehow I was becoming a Jewish person. That's actually a heresy. Um, I was actually <laughs> singing that I'm a Christian. That's what we're teaching our kids when they sing uh, Father Abraham many sons and I'm one of them. And so are you. Let's praise the Lord because Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Christ has made the promise open to all those who would choose to believe. And so that includes the Gentiles like me. So when we sing that song, we're singing that we are spiritually one of Abraham's children. And that's what Paul is saying here is that that's what matters. Just because you are part of a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. Coming to church this morning does not necessitate that God has saved you or should save you. Nothing we can do, nothing that we are is deserving of God's grace. And that's precisely why it's called grace. It's undeserved favor. It's a gift that he chooses to give. So before the twins were born, before they had done anything, good or bad, God had already chosen to show mercy. And his grace persevered through their really poor choices that we begin to see through the next 10 chapters. So hear this, God's activity always has his glory in mind and our good. That's as close as we're gonna really get to understanding why God would do what God does. He at least makes this much clear. Remember earlier in Romans in chapter eight, you know, we know that all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes or his glory. So when we think about it this way, in the story, considering Esau, he, he deserved to be blessed. In the ancient Near East culture, that's how uh, the, the birthright worked. Um, he deserved it because he was born first. He deserved the blessing of the covenant as well. But God chose to show mercy to Jacob. In his sovereignty, God gave grace to Jacob, not to Esau. But we learn from Esau that just because he was firstborn, just because he was Isaac's son, just because he was Abraham's grandson, doesn't mean that he must receive anything from God. And instead, we see his heart. Uh, even more clearly in Hebrews. So turn with me uh, to Hebrews. It is in chapter 12, starting with verse 15. The writer of Hebrews says some interesting things about Esau. He says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That See too that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought that blessing with tears. This is a pretty scathing perspective on Esau, pairing his behavior right next to sexual immorality. What it shows us is that His heart was unholy. And if we remember the end of our Genesis text, he despised his birthright. He eventually wanted the benefits of it though, uh, but it's too late. So this truth about his heart, this points us to the third thing that we can conclude about Esau. Esau wanted immediate gratification rather than future immeasurable blessing. So surely, surely Esau knew what Jacob knew about God's promise to Abraham, their grandfather. Uh, There was a promise of blessing on those who bless him and protection and ultimately of redemption. The one that would come through that line. But Esau chose to fulfill his appetite then and there. And he literally says, what good is uh, something in the future that may or may not happen? This food is right here and I'm hungry. So Esau's choices reflect a deeper truth. He did not believe God's promises. And if we are honest with our own hearts for just one moment here, we are all Esau. Apart from the grace that God has given us in Jesus, we would always choose to let our appetites lead us. To satisfy our immediate desires. I mean, look at our behavior with God's grace in Christ. I mean, culturally, we complain if a website doesn't load fast enough, or if it might take uh, more than five days to lose 10 pounds, or any number of illustrations that just popped up in your mind. Like, when we choose to immediately satisfy our hearts with anything other than Jesus, we are forgetting God's promises. So what are the three things that uh, we can conclude about Jacob then? Because Jacob is a contrast to everything Esau represents. So we may be tempted to think, well, uh, we shouldn't be like Esau. So we should be like, well, no, uh, don't be Jacob. You know, that's that's our temptation when we read a story where there's contrast like this, is we want to jump to the conclusion that, Esau is the villain, Jacob is the good guy. Wait just a second and actually read the story. This is not the moral of this story. In fact, don't be Abraham. Don't be Isaac either. I mean, I guess we've seen pretty clearly that we shouldn't be Isaac this morning, picking favorites based on delicious wild game. But seriously, as we preach through Genesis, you will never hear Brad or Sean or I say, be like this person that we're studying here. What you will hear us say, and hear this, is have faith like Abraham had faith. Which is to say, have the same object of faith. The fulfillment of God's promise to break the curse of sin and death. So don't be Jacob, like for real, don't be Jacob. But have faith in God's promises that will not fail. Have faith in the grace that he has given to you that will persevere. Now, thankfully, you know, we live on this side of Jesus' resurrection. And so we can know with certainty that death is indeed defeated. That sin is broken. That all things are being made right. So Jacob does show flashes of his faith in God's promises. But don't be like Jacob. That's one of the amazing things about this account in Genesis is that, you know, Moses, he could have taken a moment as he was recording the history of Israel. The people, like, they're getting their, this is who you are. I'm going to tell you about your, your history here, people. And so read this text. So Moses, as he's telling them about who they are. He could have taken a moment and done a little helpful editing here. I mean, he could have made Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob like the legit rock stars who were invulnerable and always awesome. But God led Moses to tell the real story with the pervasive effects of the fall and the ruined relationships and the family drama and the grace that perseveres through all of it. So from Jacob, we can also learn uh, to live with your inheritance in mind. Jacob certainly did, or rather, uh, he lived with Esau's inheritance in mind. At least that was the order of things in the ancient Near East. The inheritance would have gone double to Esau. So two-thirds to Esau, one-third to Jacob. Uh, But more than just Isaac's considerable wealth that he had inherited from his father Abraham was at stake here. The promise of the covenant was going to pass through Isaac's line. So Jacob knew to some extent that this inheritance was worth it. It was worth risk. It was worth waiting for. So this aspect of Jacob's character shows itself again in his life. He is willing to wait for what he knows is worth it. For us though, our inheritance is is a little different. (coughs) Excuse me. Paul writes about it in Ephesians 1. So turn there, and let's look at what I mean. Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit (coughs) has sealed you guaranteeing that we will receive our inheritance in Christ for we are co-heirs with him if he's indeed Lord of your life. And you can't ask for a better guarantee than a part of the Trinity. You can't ask for a more valuable inheritance than what the king of kings will inherit from the creator of the universe. So, so what would it be like To really live with our inheritance in mind. To live today, tomorrow, and every day following with our future that is sure in Christ with that in mind. In an ironic twist, uh, even though I said don't be Jacob, we're all Jacob too. (coughs) Excuse me. In the same way that we're all Esau, We're all Jacob. We are all selfish, self-preserving, conspiring liars. And yeah, that's a little harsh, uh, but apart from God's grace, apart from God's grace, we will always choose our own interests above anybody else's. And we also, we like to help God out, right? Jacob takes matters into his own hands, which is our favorite thing to do. So praise be to God that he chooses to love those who could never deserve his love. Amen? Abraham showed faith. Isaac showed faith. We can almost understand from a human perspective why God would continue the promise through them. But then we hit what looks to be, from a human perspective, a huge roadblock because both Jacob and Esau behave like faithless fools. So, how could the promise, the Messiah, be given through either of these undeserving sinners? Because God's sovereign grace is always undeserved. And God's perspective is thankfully not our perspective. So turn with me uh, finally to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, or you can read it um, from the screen. This is also the text that was up uh, during the offering. Uh, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And let's read these uh, together. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as is it written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because God's grace persevered through the sinful families of Jacob and Esau, through David, through the hundreds of years of silence, his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham found its fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. The miraculous birth, foreshadowed in the birth of Isaac and the birth of Jacob and Esau, he was the second Adam who could live a blameless life. The perfect sacrifice who alone could bear the full weight of God's wrath against sin. The only human in all of history to be bodily resurrected from the dead. Not resuscitated, but resurrected. And he now reigns with God the Father. And he will come again in the fullness of time to call home all those who confess that he is Lord and repent and believe. So if you believe God's promise, if you trust the work that Jesus has done on your behalf in your place, live with your inheritance in mind and trust God's grace to persevere and to cause you to persevere through whatever circumstances have gathered against you. You know, we've been going through
1: Genesis with the gospel origins, and uh, it was just really uh, terrific today, the lead-in. I was, as I was picking, you know, the verses that I wanted to speak, but I just realized, you know, when David was reading Ephesians, that uh, 12 times during those uh, few verses, in him, in Christ, his will, and uh, just thinking, uh, well, what is the last thing that he has to say for us? And so I turn to the uh, last chapter of Revelation. And he, Jesus, said to me, John, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.